Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. I'm a businesswoman. I'm not a politician, and I'm certainly not a lawyer. So while this week's headlines continue to be led by President Trump's personal struggle coming to terms with reality, and that reality is that 50.8% of the American electorate chose not to renew his presidential contract for another four years. While all of that's in the headlines, I'm more interested in what happened in the Supreme Court on Tuesday, November 10th, when the nine-member panel, including the newest Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett, heard the third challenge to the 10-year-old Affordable Care Act. It seems that the state of Texas and a few other Republican states and the Department of Justice, the guys who are supposed to represent the law, okay, went to the Supreme Court to argue that, that the 2017 reduction of the personal mandate, which is in the original bill, the mandate to have insurance or pay a fine, that when the, how, the Congress in 2017 reduced that mandate to zero in the tax bill, that, that that mere fact requires the overturning of the whole law. Now, number one, the original man, the mandate was intended to encourage people to sign up for insurance or at least to pay a penalty for failure to get it. You know, we like carrots and if carrots don't work, we'll dry sticks. But it was not a tax intended to pay for the entire Affordable Care Act. That, that bunch of lies would be an entire episode in and of itself, but it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to the constitutionality. How you fund something does not make it constitutional or unconstitutional given the 16th Amendment and Congress's ability to tax. This Texas game or this Texas lawsuit that the Department of Justice is arguing for, okay, doesn't make a lot of sense on the face, but it's created a lot of anxiety. And it really does come down to the argument that is made by the rest of this bipartisan panel of state states attorney general led by California, who are arguing that the Supreme Court should uphold the constitutionality of the act again. And if we get down to the technicalities of it, which we won't do because again, I'm not a lawyer. <clears throat> it really comes down to the question of whether or not the individual mandate is to be treated as a tax or not a tax. But the real center of the argument 
and the angst for most Americans are the act's treatment of things like pre-existing conditions. And it appears if one listened carefully to the questions on Tuesday that the Supreme Court is not going to strike down the entire act. And I think it really is a lot about the benefits versus the costs. And one of those big benefits is the treatment of pre-existing conditions. So let's talk for just a minute about what is a pre-existing condition. What did the ACA do, positive and negative, to change the way that pre-existing conditions are treated by private insurance companies? And why could a public option work to strengthen these protections while simultaneously reducing the consumer's cost for health care? Yes, we consumers do get some benefits here. The media likes to make synonyms of terms like cancer survivor or diabetes patient or high blood pressure patient and the term pre-existing conditions. But that barely scratches the surface of what private insurers consider to be or considered to be pre-existing conditions. All you gotta do is check the box female on the application for coverage, you've got a pre-existing condition. Yes, before the ACA, women automatically paid higher premiums than men for the same exact coverage with the same exact age and other factors. So being a woman in the world of health insurance is a pre-existing condition. Take a second, breathe that in, and we'll go on. If you then go on and check the box that gives the insurer permission to review your medical history, in other words, to ask your doctors for a copy of it, and you sign that application and submit it, and you're over the age of infancy, there's a great likelihood that you've got a pre-existing condition or two or three in your medical records that you never thought of as a pre-existing condition clause. You just mentioned something to the doctor and the doctor made a note on your chart. And you know what? That is potentially and almost automatically was in the good old days before the ACA, a pre-existing condition. You got annual hay fever? Yep. Yep. Blowing your nose when the flowers start to bloom is a pre-existing condition. If you've ever mentioned to the doctor that your hands and feet get cold during the winter months, especially if you're not wearing gloves at that moment, well, you know what? The insurance company says you've got a pre-existing condition, that there's a potential there that you might have Renault's syndrome. And you know what Renault's syndrome, how much that costs to treat? Nothing. You just have to put your hands in some warm water. And it goes on and on. And I'm, I'm being facetious about the Renaults because we could get into the complexities of its autoimmune and, or, or it has to do with circulation. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but you get my point. That list of everything, any note in your, in your healthcare record uh, is like, if you're more than two years old is likely to become in the old days in the pre-ACA days, 
a pre-existing condition. So if you're a female and or you have hay fever, it doesn't mean you can't buy a private insurance policy. Yeah, well, you can. But before the Affordable Care Act, the premium that each patient paid reflected the insurer's estimate of how much additional risk your cumulative pre-existing conditions presented. How much greater was the risk that you were going to become part of the 5% who are 80% of the cost of healthcare in a given year? Thus, it was ordinary and customary to charge women higher premiums than their male peers. Now, it takes two to tango, but only one person has maternity costs. For example, the most significant change the Affordable Care Act made to the insurance industry was to eliminate the industry's ability to discriminate against the probably 150 million Americans who have some sort of pre-existing condition, period. And that change, that one change was an earthquake felt throughout the insurance industry, right down to the individual consumer whether that consumer was covered by an employer-based insurance program or had a private policy. And that earthquake resulted from the insurance industry's need to protect itself from an increased level of financial risk from all of these you know, pre-existing condition people that they couldn't measure. They didn't know. How many new people would be added into the insurance pool? How many of those people had known or unknown pre-existing conditions that insurers would need to cover? How severe were those pre-existing conditions? How long would they have to be covered? And for example, how many women of childbearing age would sign up for Obamacare and of that number of women, how many would become pregnant? And at what interval? In year one of the new program? Or year five? Or year 10? That makes a big difference. Because insurance, whether it's health or auto or home or life or business continuity, anything is based in the insurance world on pooling the risk, in other words, sharing the risk. An insurance pool is defined as a mechanism to spread the financial risks evenly among a large number of contributors to a set of individual policies. And when you double down on that by saying that you can't charge more for known risk, well, then the overall cost to the individual to be a part of that pool goes up. And that's what happened. With no, ex mark, no experience base, insurers had raised premiums for everyone in the private and, and employer-based marketplaces just to ensure that they would have enough money on hand to pay claims in the first year. And that hopefully they would still have money left over to invest so that they could pay claims in future years. Now, what that means is insurance companies take your premium dollars 
And generally speaking, they use those premium dollars to make investments in, you know, construction projects and other things that bear a rate of return. But in the case of Obamacare, because they didn't know what their payouts were going to be, their ability to invest in that first year was reduced, but they didn't want to reduce it to zero. So that was calculated into this significant increase in premiums in year one. So you, because you've got to have money to invest so that over a longer period of time, you can pay claims out of investment income while reinvesting premium dollars so that your pool of cash to pay for a pool of claims, the cash exceeds the claims on a consistent basis. So the burden on the pool's ability to pay in that, in that analogy that we've just been through is far less than, you know, the, the burden is far less in year 10 than it was in year one because the insurers got nine years of investment income against premiums paid to offset later even higher claims. So the ACA opened to steep increases that were spread throughout the American middle class. And the result was predictable. There was anger, frustration, and calls to overturn the law. It is said that the ACA is what gave life to the Tea Party movement, taxed enough already. But a decade later, now that the initial shock in higher premiums for all has been absorbed and to some degree lessened, well, like most entitlements today, the Affordable Care Act, including the provisions covering pre-existing conditions, has become more popular with more than half the population now supporting it fully. And an even higher percentage want the pre-existing coverage provisions retained even if the law is overturned. And since those in power would rather not tell you the truth, I will. You can't have pre-existing condition clauses and overturn the Affordable Care Act unless you replace it with something that looks almost like it. Now, again, that's because 5% of the insured in any given year drive 80% of the cost of care in that year. But that doesn't mean that their 5% drives 80% of the same 5% drives 80% of the cost in every year. So for example, a woman having a baby is part of the 5% one year and falls back into the 80% the next year. A bicyclist who gets hit by a car on a roadway is part of the 5% the year the accident occurs and then falls back into the 80% the following year. Now, of course, the analogy kind it ebbs and flows, you know, that 80% number. It's not exact. You notice there's a 15% fudge factor in there. Now, if you have a heart attack, that puts the person in the 5% range, range of cost at the moment that that heart attack happens. But if you have good post-incident health care, 
you know, and, and you follow the regime that your government, your doctor has laid out for you, the cost of continuous care in the following years is greater than the average of about $100, $150, but it's way less than the 5% number. So the insurance premium pool has to be sufficient to pay for all of those high cost incidents in every year, whether they can predict them or not, COVID-19 being an example of something they could not predict, but they're having to pay for it. And those hospital stays are pretty long and these compassionate usage and special authorization drugs are very, very expensive. So this is one of those years where the insurance industry could not predict and is going to take years to settle out. So it's possible that we will see premiums reflect that unexpected condition in the coming year. But we don't know yet because it could turn out that the government picks up all those COVID costs and doesn't reflect that back into the insurance industry. We don't know that yet. Certainly have been a number of bills. None of them have made it, well, one made it out of the house, Uh, but not out of the Senate. So the only way in the long term, if we set COVID aside, in the long term, the only way out of the dilemma that comes from pre-existing conditions and expanded coverage, both of which cost money and that are thus reflected in higher premiums for everybody in the pool, that's a lot of us, okay? The only way out of the dilemma is to either reduce the underlying cost of healthcare. Remember that ours is twice as expensive as any of our other peers in the developed world on a per head basis. But we can either reduce those costs, we must reduce those costs in any case, or we can expand the coverage pool. Or best yet, we can do both. What would what would accomplish both would be and a lot of you are going to object to what I'm about to say, but hear me out, would be to expand the Affordable Care Act with a public option, a public option made up of private insurance companies that you could choose from with subsidies if you qualify, without subsidies if you don't qualify, okay? Um, That public option would have to guarantee that the plans it covers, regardless if they come from MetLife or United Healthcare or you know Aetna or anybody else, um, are as good or better in coverage to everyone who participates in that public option than is currently in an employer-based plan or a private health insurance plan. Okay, in that scenario, some private sector employers would actually find that their employees could get a better deal in the public option than under their current employer-based healthcare. And lowering the cost of covering that healthcare for the employer would result in higher pay for the employees and more choice in how much coverage versus how much risk they want to take on personally with their you know, after-tax dollars. So 
Could Congress be persuaded to adopt such a public option that is not, you know, that, that because when we say public option, most people think it's a further rationalization of Medicaid. And, and Medicaid is an important subject. And yeah, sometime um, when the headlines are not screaming, it would be a great topic to cover. But this is not about the rationalization of Medicaid. This is about lowering the cost, the premium cost and the de deduction costs and the health, the drug costs, et cetera, uh, out of pocket drug costs, et cetera, out of everyone who is part of the so-called private insurance market, whether you're employer-based or you buy your policy directly from a carrier, okay? <clears throat> so what would that take? Well, it would take Congress being persuaded to adopt a public option that includes them. Yep. If we included Congress, their staffs, the entire executive branch, and all civil service federal employees and appointed employees, you know what? We could have a pretty good public option plan that would increase the pool, reduce the cost of coverage per member of the pool, spread that risk still further, and provide probably better coverage because any plan that was good enough for members of Congress is most certainly going to be good enough for you and me. And again, the bigger the pool, the lower the cost of that extra high quality care would be to each plan participant. You know, there's a lot of money, your taxpayer dollars that are going into funding all of that health care for all of those people, as well as all state and local employees. If you put all that money into the overall one risk pool that all the private insurers draw from, the cost per individual insured person in the plan will be less. It's just simple math. It shouldn't be politics, folks, because it is simple math. And you know what? For all the yelling and screaming about socialized medicine and, you know, blah, 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 Medicare is not socialized medicine, but it's the most popular insurance program in the country. If you turn on your television now during Medicare open enrollment, which there isn't a person alive doesn't know it's Medicare open enrollment. If this were not a good deal for the private insurance market, would they be spending millions and millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to secure the premium dollars? You know, the uh, Medicare Advantage and, and PPO plan donut hole film, filling private plans in addition to Medicare. That's why it's so popular because it's great coverage for the cost. Now, also remember that you pay a tax for Medicare all your working life. You pay a percent and a half off the top in your payroll tax to support Medicare. It's self-funded. That's another reason we need to look at a public option. The bigger the pool, the bigger the source of funding for both 
premiums and subsidies. And at some point, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to look at that individual mandate, whatever kind of tax. Is it an increase in the Medicare plan um, premium tax during your working life? You know, the percent and a half goes to a percent and three quarters or two percent to pay for the subsidies in um, the Affordable Care Act. I don't know. I think that's a subject Congress needs to take up because healthcare is too big a part of the current federal budget. We need to pay for things we want. Okay. And now that we've said 55, as much as 65% of Americans want the ACA not to be overturned, we need to have that subsequent discussion about, okay, if you want it, and I think we should have it. We should, in fact, expand it. But then we've got to come up with the other side of the coin. We got to figure out how to pay for it. And I'm sure that both sides of this coin are going to come back to us again before the end of the current Supreme Court session, because at some point between now and next June, the Supreme Court is going to render its verdict on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And I guarantee you, congressional action will follow. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.